When someone disappears without a trace, it must be one of the most torturous things to happen to the family and friends they leave behind. And as the days and weeks slip into months and years, the hopes of a happy ending get slimmer and slimmer, often ending up with a body being found which finally, at the very least, offers some closure. However, sometimes there is no end, no explanation, no closure, either because the missing person doesn't want to be found, or the person responsible for the disappearance has expertly hidden their tracks. Here, we look at three disappearances that have never been solved, but have caught the imagination of internet sleuths who are desperate to pull some of the cryptic clues together to try and finally find some answers. This is Cold Case Detective. Jalik Rainwalker Jalik Rainwalker was born on August 2nd, 1995, to a mother who was, sadly, addicted to crack cocaine and alcohol. As is not uncommon in such situations, Jalik too was born addicted to cocaine. With his mother unable to look after him, Jalik spent his early childhood in different foster homes, before he was finally adopted in 2007 by Jocelyn McDonald and Stephen Kerr, who already had three biological sons and an adopted daughter. Understandably, Jalik was a difficult child, and despite being very intelligent, he was also very troubled and prone to violent temper tantrums. Although Kerr and McDonald were deemed a therapeutic home, supposedly suited to his special needs. However, they led a very unusual lifestyle at their home in Washington County, New York. It had no running water, the toilets were outhouses, the electricity came from a generator, everyone slept in one room, and all the children were homeschooled. The family stated they lived this way because it was better for the environment. Soon after his adoption, Jalik became problematic to the family, and his four siblings were allegedly scared of him and according to his adopted father, Jalik threatened to rape a child at the small home school he attended. So, just three months after he was adopted, Kerr and McDonald called a crisis hotline and told them Jalik was unmanageable. McDonald said she was afraid of him, he was a danger to the family, and she no longer wanted him to stay in their home. She even asked to reverse the adoption. The crisis worker told her that this was not possible as the adoption was binding, so instead, she suggested respite care. Jalik was sent to the home of Elaine and Tom Person. They had provided respite care for Jalik in the past, so he was already familiar with them. Jalik stayed with the Persons until the 1st of November 2007, when he returned to Kerr, who planned to send him to another respite home the next day. Sadly, Jalik never made that trip. On the night of the 1st of November, Jalik spent the night with Stephen Kerr at Kerr's father's house in Greenwich. The pair were alone in the house and had not returned to the family home as they wanted to protect the other children from his violent outbursts. Kerr claims he woke up the next morning at around 7.30am to find Jalik was missing. 
he left behind a note which read, Dear everybody, I'm sorry for everything. I won't be a bother anymore. Goodbye, Jalik. 12-year-old Jalik has never been seen or heard from since. Kerr waited 90 minutes before reporting his son missing, and at first claimed a duffel bag and his son's favorite toy animal were both missing. However, these items were later found in their garage. Jalik did not have any cash or credit cards with him when he vanished. An extensive search of the area turned up nothing, and within a few days, police announced they suspected foul play, since it was unlikely that a child of that age could survive on his own. He was classified as endangered missing, although the possibility that Jalik ran away or committed suicide was not ruled out. Suspicion immediately fell upon his adoptive parents, and although McDonald took a polygraph and passed, Kerr refused to take one. He said he had a medical condition, and therefore it was too unreliable. He was also not willing to give a DNA sample. The couple claimed that biracial Jalik always identified as black, and always felt more comfortable around African Americans, and they believed he had run away to live within an African American community, possibly Albany, where Jalik's half-brothers lived. However, there is absolutely no evidence of this, and police debunked the claim early on and declared Jalik's adopted father as a person of interest in his son's disappearance. Police extensively searched their home and the grandfather's home because they suspected Jalik might be buried there. Additionally, police, forest rangers, and the FBI combed the woods and waterways around the Washington County towns of Greenwich and Cambridge. They even searched the camping grounds where the family vacationed, but not a trace was found. Although Jalik had no contact with his birth family, there are still several people who genuinely miss him and continue to search for answers. These include some of his foster carers and his maternal adoptive grandmother, Barbara Reilly, who even set up a task force dedicated to finding her missing grandson. It seems the only ones who want to forget Jalik are his adoptive parents, Jocelyn and Stephen. Barbara believes that the letter Jalik left when he disappeared was part of an earlier school project and had been written weeks before he vanished. To this day, Barbara maintains that her son-in-law knows more and might have killed Jalik. She said his behavior over the years leads her to believe he is capable of hurting a child. Barbara is now estranged from her daughter and they are no longer on speaking terms. During the investigations, Jalik's adoptive father has repeatedly lied to police about his whereabouts the night Jalik disappeared. He claimed he slept through the night, but police found an image from a surveillance camera that captured a van very similar to his. However, Kerr denied their request to examine his van. They also analyzed Kerr's cell phone data, and it pinged in an area far away from his father's home, where he said he was staying with Jalik. But perhaps most suspicious of all is that Kerr was caught by several people tearing down missing person posters of his son. Kerr denied this, but admitted he asked store owners to remove them. However, multiple eyewitnesses swear they saw Kerr removing the signs. In January 2008, there was a surprising breakthrough. A letter was sent to the media and the family, claiming that Jalik was still alive and likely being held by someone. The letter reads, Jalik still alive, needed a foot soldier for this war on drugs. Picked him up RT40 post 30. He's okay, no fake. 
He says, ask his mama and papa, who are the macaroni family? My cat named Diamond? Why does Franti yell fire? Don't try to look, we are not there. The letter did not have a return address, but was postmarked Westchester, New York. Police suspected that Kerr himself wrote the letter to divert police and throw them off his trail. But why would he do this? It is fair to say that Jocelyn McDonald and Stephen Kerr's behavior has been very unusual since their son disappeared, and they appeared to have no interest in joining the campaign to find him. In 2013, the adoptive parents were reinvestigated, and Jalik's case was reclassified as a homicide investigation. Although, we must point out, there is still not enough evidence to charge either of them with any crime. When Jalik disappeared, he was a growing preteen, around five foot six and 105 pounds, with Afro-styled hair. Today, he would be a 25-year-old man. One key identifying feature is a slight speech impediment that causes him to pronounce the letter R as W. It is still possible Jalik is alive, although as the years pass, it sadly becomes less and less likely. However, his adoptive parents are to this day convinced he is alive and living with a family who, for unknown reasons, have kept him hidden. If anyone has any information on this case, please contact the Greenwich Village Police Department on 518-692-9332. Joan Risch. The disappearance of Joan Risch is one of the most peculiar missing person cases ever, and although it occurred nearly 60 years ago, it still remains a hotly debated topic with internet sleuths. Joan Risch was a 31-year-old mother who lived in Ridgefield, Connecticut with her husband Martin, daughter Lillian, age four, and son David, age two. Joan had suffered a somewhat tragic childhood after both her parents died in a suspicious fire in 1940, and before being adopted by her aunt and uncle, she was placed with foster parents, where Joan said her foster father sexually abused her. However, by 1961, Joan was happily married, and although she wasn't thought to have lots of friends, she was active in her community and was a member of the League of Women Voters, and was also known to be fiercely protective of her children. On October 24th, 1961, Martin left their home early to catch an 8am flight to New York City for a business trip. After he left, Joan woke the children and fed them breakfast. She then left her son with her neighbor, Barbara Barker, so that she could run a couple of errands. First, she took four-year-old Lillian to a dentist appointment, then went to the bank to cash a check before going to the shop to pick up a few things. Joan and Lillian returned home at 11 a.m. and picked up David from Barbara. The milkman and the mailman who delivered to Joan's home that day said they didn't notice anything unusual, and the dry cleaner who picked up Martin's suits for cleaning from inside the home said the same. Everything seemed normal. Around noon, Joan made the children lunch and then put David down in his crib for a nap. He would typically sleep at this time for a few hours. While David slept, Lillian played with the next door neighbor's boy, Douglas, while Joan did chores in the garden. A little before 2 p.m., Joan asked if Lillian could go with Douglas to his house to play and told Barbara that she would be back shortly. The two children played in the backyard. 
Fifteen minutes later, Barbara looked out her kitchen window and saw Joan come out of her house in a trench coat. She said Joan looked dazed and was walking quickly, but she just assumed she was chasing after David. She later saw Joan walking back towards her house. At 3.40pm, Barbara sent Lillian back to her own house because she needed to run errands for herself. She returned home at 4.15pm, and that is when Lillian came out of her house saying, Mummy's gone, and the kitchen is covered in red paint. Barbara rushed into the house. She found David crying in his crib, but no sign of Joan, and the red paint Lillian said she saw was not paint. It was blood. Police arrived at 4.33 p.m. and Sergeant Mike McHugh arrived a few minutes later. There was blood on the floor and the walls and the phone had been ripped off the wall and thrown into a garbage can. The table and chairs had been overturned. An address book found nearby was opened to the emergency numbers section. Sergeant Mike then noticed that the blood on the kitchen floor trailed all the way upstairs to David's bedroom and all the way back into the kitchen. The trail continued all outside and stopped at the trunk of Joan's car. The amount of blood found did not indicate Joan had suffered a life-threatening wound. It also appeared that someone had tried to smear the blood around to make it look like there was more blood than there really was. The blood type was O, which matched to Joan's, although it was never determined if it was in fact her blood. Investigators found it odd that with all the blood on the floor, there were no footprints in it. There was, however, a bloody partial palm print and two fingerprints on the wall and a single bloody thumbprint on the phone. At the time, it could not be determined if they were Joan's prints, as she had none on file, but it was later confirmed they were not hers. To this day, there hasn't been a match. Initially, it was believed that she had committed suicide, but a thorough search of the area turned up nothing. The next door neighbor's daughters told police that they saw a two-toned Oldsmobile sedan parked behind Joan's own vehicle in her driveway around 3.20 p.m., the day she disappeared. Another neighbor claimed they saw a smaller car parked along the streets, and the milkman said he also saw that vehicle parked in Joan's driveway five days earlier when he delivered their morning milk. There were several people who claimed to see Joan the day she went missing. Many reported they saw her walking along Route 128 in Walton, which was close to the Cambridge Reservoir. Investigators took these tips seriously and had the water searched thoroughly, but nothing was found. Another report was that she was walking along the side of Route 2A, which was close to her home, wearing a loose-fitting grey coat and a handkerchief tied underneath her chin like she was trying to hide her face. She was described as, quote, shuffling along and hunched over, clutching her stomach, and had what looked like blood or mud on her legs. In a strange twist, investigations revealed that leading up to her disappearance, Joan had checked out several books from her local library. All the books were about true crime and mystery. In fact, she had checked out a total of 25 books in the months leading up to her disappearance. However, one stood out. It was titled Into Thin Air, and was about the tale of a young wife who disappears from her home, and the only evidence left behind was the blood that had been smeared with towels. In the book, the woman left her husband and newborn child to find a more fulfilling life. Could this have been what Joan did? No one knows for certain. There has never been a trace of Joan ever found. However, there are a lot of theories. Some believe that Joan had a botched abortion or maybe even a miscarriage, and that's where all the blood came from, and that is what the neighbor saw. 
The blood loss may have made Joan disoriented and she tried to walk to the hospital or get help and passed out and bled to death. Or the abortionist botched an operation, panicked when she stumbled out of the house and followed her, murdered her and disposed of her body to cover their tracks, making the house look like she'd had an intruder. It is, however, important to note that there is no evidence Joan was pregnant and if she was, her husband was unaware. Others believe that the car that was frequently seen was that of her lover and she left with him to start a new life. This one seems unlikely as Joan lived for her children and by all accounts was happily married and it wouldn't have been in her nature to get involved with another man. The official line is that she was murdered by an intruder and her body was transported possibly to the nearby town of Lexington where she was buried in a vacant tract of land that years later became a residential housing estate. But despite of all these swirling theories and ideas, we are still no closer to truly knowing what happened in the case of Joan Rish. Charlie Allen Jr. 22-year-old college senior Charlie Allen Jr. was an obsessive tennis player who dreamed of becoming a professional, but on October 12, 2007, he vanished from the face of the earth. The day he went missing, he had played tennis with his friend Mason on Dartmouth campus, where he was a senior psychology major. After the game, the pair ate pizza at the student cafeteria, then parted ways, and was supposed to meet up again at 8pm that evening to go to a party. However, Charlie never showed up. What happened next is unclear, but it is known that Charlie's sister noticed that his Facebook had been deleted so she called him to ask why. He freaked out, telling her that he didn't do it and that important people were after him. He ended the call by telling her that all the answers can be found in the periodic table of elements. Charlie then calls his parents on their cell phones and leaves them voicemails, telling his dad he's going to Texas and his mum he's going to Florida. In the calls, it sounds like he's running. The last time Charlie was seen was around 3 a.m. in the early hours of October 13th, when he broke into a house near campus, wearing just his pants and trainers. When the homeowner confronted him, he asked her if Mason was there. When the woman said no, he apologized and ran away into the woods. He has never been seen or heard from since. His parents became concerned when they couldn't get hold of him by phone, and they alerted the police. Investigators searched his dorm and found that his computer had been wiped. The only thing that they find is a web search for the University of Texas. They find Charlie's backpack in a backyard along with his shoes. His blue 1999 Ford Expedition car was found abandoned on the university campus and it looked like it had been slept in. His keys, cell phone and charger were never located. An extensive search of the area turned up nothing. It was, however, established that a few things changed in Charlie's life in the months leading up to his disappearance. He had inexplicably stopped taking his medication to treat his bipolar disorder. In addition to this, he had legally changed his name to Neo Babson Maximus. The exact reason he did this is unknown, but it is thought he wanted a more unique name for when he became famous as a tennis player. In the days after his disappearance, a trucker said he saw a shirtless, shoeless man hitching a ride out of town with a truck. 
No further progress was made on Charlie's whereabouts until 2009, when a man named Stephen, who lived in New Bedford, a town near Dartmouth campus, reported that a man rang his doorbell at 4am. He said that he looked disheveled and asked for directions back to SMU, an old acronym for Dartmouth. The man seemed afraid and Stephen asked him to wait while he called the police, but when he went back to the door, the man was gone. When this man was later shown pictures of Charlie, he swore that that was the man at his door. Many believe that Charlie may have gone into a manic state without his medication, although the family disagree with this theory. It is also likely that if Charlie had entered a manic state, he would have been recovered and easy to track. Another theory is that he lost his mind and memory somehow and simply wandered off with no idea who he was. However, those who knew him believe he went missing intentionally, claiming he was too smart for the wiped computer and web search to be merely accidental. Or maybe, as he claimed, important people really were after him. To date, there is no new information, but there is a Facebook group set up that gets updated to help raise awareness and try and find out what happened to Charlie, or Maximus as he's now known. Was this a man who intentionally disappeared? Was he leaving clues about what he intended to do? Or had he suffered a mental breakdown after stopping taking his medication? Investigators don't believe foul play is responsible, but they also have no idea where Charlie is. It is entirely possible that he is still alive, living happily somewhere with a new identity. We sincerely hope this is the case and that one day he feels he can come forward and reunite with his family. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you're still hungry for true crime content, you can also check out the Cold Case Detective podcast, which is released every Monday. You'll find a link to that down below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.